Um, we're going to start tonight, and I won't uh, go through the usual uh, faith rest drill because we have a bunch of material to finish up on this chapter, and I'd like to get it done tonight so we can go on to further things. Father, we thank you for this time together tonight. We thank you for the salvation that you have given us, a perfect salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, an unchallengeable uh, salvation. And we thank you that you have provided this to each one of us, that you continue to offer it in these days prior to your return. We thank you now through our Savior's name. Amen. Uh, if you'll turn your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 4, <clears throat> we're going to try to finish up this uh, event that we've been on, the uh, session of Christ. And I'll start where we left off last time when we were talking about the doctrine of judgment and salvation. And we said there, we, we've gone through this a number of times. Again, why do we do these five points? Because the ideas of justification and the idea of salvation are revealed chiefly in key historic events, those two being the flood and the exodus. And when you look at those events, you see these characteristics again and again. But they come to fruition, they come to fulfillment in this period of history prior to the return of Christ. So if this is the first advent of Christ and this is the second advent of Christ, we're in between. And it's in between this era that we have the countdown to the final judgment salvation. And history is moving toward that point. And so we have the first characteristic. We said God's always gracious before he judges. There's always a period of grace involved. And there was in Egypt, there wasn't the flood, and so far there's been nearly 2,000 years of grace prior to Christ's return. Then we said there's a perfect discrimination because God in the flood discriminated completely and surgically between those who believed and those who disbelieved, did the same thing in the Exodus. There were houses that had blood on them and there were houses that did not have blood on them and that was the partition, that was the discrimination. It was precise, it wasn't statistically smeared. Third thing, characteristic of God's way, is always he always has one way of judgment. <clears throat> it's exclusivistic. And it's that exclusivism that always angers and irritates uh, the non-Christian. But the Bible says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. There is no other name given among he under heaven whereby we must be saved. So there's one way and one way only. And that makes sense if we recognize what the cross is all about and the character of God. Then we said that man and nature are always involved in God's judgments. It's not just man, it's also man and nature. And the reason for that is design of creation. What was man in the original Garden of Eden context? He was the Lord of creation. And because he was the Lord of creation, he was have dominion over nature. As goes man, so goes nature. <clears throat> but as history goes on, we recognize that built into nature is not just molecules and atoms, but there are also spiritual parts to nature. And those spiritual parts to nature are angels. So now, when we come 
not to the flood, not to the exodus, but we come to this period of time prior to the return of Christ, and man and nature once again become involved, but this time, the part of nature that gets involved is the angelic realm. And so, we, we come now to finish up how these angelic beings are involved in the age in which we live, the church age. We said that what goes on is that in the church age, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a member of the human race, started out on the scale of man. Man was created lower than the angels, so we have angels here, and we have God's throne up here. But what happened is, when Jesus Christ completed the salvation package, when he, he said it was finished, and he was, he was raised from the dead, and he ascended to heaven, he went above the angels. So now we have a situation never had in history before, where a member of the human race is higher than the most powerful angels. The Lord Jesus Christ outranks them. And this was a momentous thing that happened in history. The reason why we don't think much about it is because it was in the unseen realm. It was not something out in the open that so can be observed with cameras. And because of that, because it's invisible, it's not invisible at God's throne, but invisible to us on earth, um, we, we make light of this and don't give it its proper emphasis. So that's why for the past eight or nine weeks, we've gone over this and over this and over this, so we won't forget when we get into now, we're going to move on the next step after we get through a little divergence. The next step is going to be Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's emphasized a lot in church history. The problem is that that is not properly interpreted if you don't load it at the front end with the session of Christ at the Father's right hand. Well, in Matthew chapter 4, uh, what we want to do by going to Matthew chapter 4 is we want to study a little bit more about a topic that we introduced last time, and that was that the Lord, the, uh, Lord Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand sits on the throne and his credentials cannot be challenged by Satan who's always busy trying to challenge the legal basis of God's workings. We see that in the book of Job. We see that in Isaiah 14. We see that in Ezekiel 28. We see that in the way he moved through the church in, in the book of, um, uh, of uh, Chronicles in the Old Testament. It depicts how Satan misled David into doing a census and that sort of thing. So Satan's always got his fingers in the system, trying to basically, bottom line, is challenge God's right to be God. And one way he has of doing that is to say that God is being unfair to him, that is to Satan. The argument looks like this. We have one-third of the angelic beings, Satan plus all the demons. So we have this group here, who know that they are going to be judged by God. So what they're trying to do, as far as we can determine from Scripture, is trying to argue their case with God that God cannot judge them without judging man, because man has fallen too. So the issue now becomes, and this is very important to sort out because of the Gospel and the way the Gospel is designed, However God redeems man, with this kind of, a, of an objection from other creatures, 
He's got to do it such that however the salvation package works out, it doesn't compromise his righteousness and his justice. Because if it does, then these creatures have an appeal, a basis of appeal to that. Um, this is why in the book of Job that we covered last time, remember, Satan came to God and he said, look, you know, uh, Job worships you, all right, but he worships you because you're given special privileges. Take away the special privileges and watch a creature, see? In other words, no creature God is going to really worship you of his own free will. All the creatures that worship you have been coddled, have been protected, have, they are not going to bite the hand that feeds them, and so forth and so on. So this is the argument, that there's no genuine worship of God among the creatures that's worthy of the name. So it's a very serious accusation, and it, 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 it goes directly to God himself, bypassing the man completely. This is an issue of between God and his creation. So... When the Lord Jesus Christ, prior to the session, when he was down here incarnate, during this time period, the issue was Satan has superior rank. The issue now is, will Jesus Christ, walking around on this planet, and we studied his, his, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection last time. But we want to look at an aspect of that because we covered a lot of heavy stuff. Remember? Hypostatic union, kenosis, impeccability. And I, I'm sure you thought, well, why do I have to know that? Why is all that about? That's a pretty heavy, advanced doctrine. It's because those doctrines protect the integrity of the throne room. And now we're going to see why. If you look in Matthew chapter 4, when Je Satan confronted the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus was a threat to Satan because the Lord Jesus Christ was going to get down underneath where man was and prove that a man could perfectly obey God. Remember, Jesus Christ was God and he was man. So in Matthew chapter 4, you have recorded the conflict. Satan wanted to get him to sin. And he had to put the pressure on here because he knew that Jesus was sinless. He doesn't have to put that kind of pressure on us because he already knows we're fallen. But the Lord Jesus, because of his unique birth, remember, virgin born, Jesus Christ came into this world in bodies like ours, but without sharing the position of being a sinner in Adam. So therefore, he stood out like a sore thumb, and Satan knew exactly who Jesus Christ was. So he begins to operate on Jesus' humanity, because remember, Jesus Christ has deity, and he has humanity. And Satan can't argue with his deity, but he can argue with his humanity, so he attacks the humanity, and that's what he's doing here in Matthew chapter 4. The tempter came, verse 3, and said... If you are the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. And of course, verse 2 has already prepared us for verse 3, because in verse 2 you have the notation about Jesus being very hungry at 40 days of fasting. So, in verse 3, can anyone see the maneuver that's being pulled here? It's not just a simple temptation. Let's look carefully at verse 3 and think. 
about what's going on here. This is a brilliant attempt to destroy the salvation package before it can even get assembled. It says, if you're the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, the condition of that sentence, is that condition true or false? It's true, right? So, the first part of that sentence is, is okay. But Satan always takes truth and he, he maneuvers it. He has an agenda of distorting it and deceiving it. How does the second result clause, the clause that follows, the second clause in verse 3, how does it follow from verse 1? Let's, um, from verse, how does the second clause in verse 3 follow logically from the first clause in verse 3? What's the appeal? If you be the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, is he the Son of God? Yes, he is. But why is it wrong to conclude that if he is the Son of God, then why shouldn't he make stones into bread? What would have happened had Jesus made stones into bread there? Why is it important that he not make stones into bread? Let's think about that for a minute. It was important that the Lord Jesus Christ not turn the stones into bread. Because if he did, then he was exercising his deity against a satanic temptation. The temptation came to his humanity, and if he turned the stones into bread, it was his deity that was answering the temptation. But the Lord Jesus Christ stood his ground because his mission, and we'll see, we'll, this will clear up in a minute here, his mission is that he executed the plan of God for his life in his humanity. And he didn't compromise his humanity by coming in, oh, I'm God after all, so I can take the pressure off and I'll rely, rely on some of my divine attributes. He didn't do that. Satan tried to get him to do that because once he did that, what would that do to the perfect Lamb of God sacrificially on the cross? It would disqualify him. Because now we don't have the Messiah doing what Adam should have done in the first place, namely a member of the human race with a creation ordinance to do what? To, to obey God and to become the, the Lord of, of the creation under God. So the creature was supposed to obey the Creator. But if Satan could maneuver the Lord Jesus Christ to compromise his humanity, switch over to his deity, make the stones into bread, then it wasn't obedience of a creature. So this is a very clever maneuver. Now notice something else. Verse 5 and 6. He says, Go to the holy city. He led him up to the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now he even quotes scripture. Because the Lord Jesus answered him in verse 4 with Scripture. So now Satan raises the heat some more. Now he can quote Scripture. And he quotes it very well, by the way. This is a legitimate text. He will give his angels charge concerning you. On their hands he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So he's saying, go ahead. But the point here again is, was it the will of God for the Lord Jesus Christ to deliberately and promiscuously endanger his life 
and dangerous humanity just on a flank. And that was not the will of God. That would have been disobedient to the mission. But it was a temptation because in verse 6, the first clause again is, if you're the Son of God, why can't you do this? And you can imagine, Jesus is tired, he's hungry. These were real temptations to him. And the Bible records that. Somewhere he must have shared this with the disciples, and the disciples wrote it down and got into our Bibles. It's a report of a genuine temptation the Lord Jesus Christ experienced. And we can be glad he did this, by the way, because remember the passage in Hebrews? What does it say about our high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities? Why? Because he was what? In all points tempted as we are. Here's part of it. So the Lord Jesus Christ is not like Allah, who has never come to earth incarnate, no claim in the Koran of coming to the earth. Confucius and Buddha aren't gods, so they didn't come. They, they were on earth already. So it's the only place in the world, in the history of the world, where God becomes man, walks around, is tempted, and understands what temptation is. Now, one other thing. In verse 8 and verse 9, there's a, there's a third temptation here that we want to watch carefully because it shows, I think, more clearly the problem of, of status. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, why would the Lord Jesus Christ be interested in all the kingdoms of the world? Why was this first clause important? What was the role of Messiah? What's the ultimate destiny of the Messiah? To rule all the kingdoms of the world. Kingdom of God. So here, Satan takes advantage of a moral impulse to rule, and he deflects it. So he takes something good, as he's done already twice, he takes something good, something that's scriptural, and then he tacks it on so disobedient. Clever. And notice the implication in verse 9 that I give you this. Well, Satan can't give what he doesn't have to give, right? So verse 9 is one of powerful references that at this point in time, Satan had total control over the world and all political kingdoms in it. To reinforce that, if you notice in our notes on page 20, I quote 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Ephesians 2.2. 2. We won't turn there in the interest of time, but if you want further references, the concept carries over. Paul talks about Satan as the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air. So now the problem comes, if that's so, Satan here in verse 9 has control of the kingdoms of the world, and in the New Testament, after Christ goes to the throne, because 2 Corinthians and Ephesians are written after this has happened, so chronologically this is afterwards, why can Satan still be called the god of this world and the prince of the power of the air when in fact the Lord Jesus Christ sits as a raised, successful human being at the Father's right hand? 
That's the setup for the church age. And that's the background for Pentecost. That's the background for the unique structure of, this, of the church and its mission and what it's all about. So that's why we want to think on these things and wrestle with these things to get a grasp of what's going on. Jesus Christ, starting at this point, whether it's 30 or 33 AD, whatever, at this point in time, we have a genuine member of the human race seated at the Father's right hand above the angels. And yet it's said that one angel in particular, Satan, is the god of this world. That he's the prince of the power of the air. That he rules. And yet Jesus Christ has outranked him and he's up here. So how can Satan be the god of this world and the Lord Jesus Christ having all power and authority delivered into his hand? Well, we're going to look at a passage in the Old Testament for analogy of this. So if you'll turn to 2 Samuel 22. This is David. And back when we studied David a few years ago, In 2 Samuel 22, David has, this is also Psalm 18, this is a time when David spoke the words of the song in the day the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And this we reviewed back a few weeks ago when we said, remember the Ark of the Covenant came after David was installed as king and so forth, and that this was the the, the final conclusion to David's life. If we draw an analog line down here, David's life, and we make the events correspond to Jesus in history, 2 Samuel is the same, it corresponds to when the Lord Jesus Christ sits on David's throne and is victorious. So, we want to go backwards now in David's life. What happened before this? When it says in 2 Samuel 22, the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, what preceded that verse? What was David's personal history? Saul was king. And he was persecuting David. All right, we go all the way back. And it was all the way back, remember, in 1 Samuel 16, somewhere, that what happened then? Back here, David was anointed. Was he a young man, middle-aged man, or old man? He was a young man. So from this point of the anointing, 1 Samuel 16, all the way down to 2 Samuel 22, we have an interim period. At 1 Samuel 16, David was anointed. The word anointing is Messiah. He was called of God and anointed at that point. Was he Messiah's own? Was he surely to be king over Israel? Absolutely. Absolutely. Was he king in effect over Israel? No, he wasn't. Why? Because there was another king over Israel. Who was the other king? Saul. And Saul wasn't going to give up the throne voluntarily for David. So now we have the, the paradox that we have two kings simultaneously existing. 
we have Saul all the way down to here. We have David all the way down to here. Saul is on the throne. David is not on the throne. At this point, Saul goes away. David replaces him. So now we have an analog that helps us understand a little bit about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ rises from the dead, passes through the realm of the angels, and sits at the Father's right hand. This qualifies him to fulfill any prophecy going. But the Lord Jesus Christ isn't actually fulfilling all that. That's not David's throne. And there's some dispensational, progressive dispensationalists today who think that Jesus Christ is fulfilling David's throne because he's at the Father's right hand. It's not David's throne, it's the Father's throne. Two different thrones, two different times, two different circumstances. David was anointed, functioned as the king to come, and then finally took his throne here after he waited in faith for Saul to go away. He trusted the Lord for Saul. Now, back three or four weeks ago, before the holidays, remember we said, what is true in Psalm 2? What is true in Daniel 7? What is true in Psalm 110? What do you say? You said, we found and we discovered that the Father said to the Son, sit at my right hand until something happens. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Remember that? What was David doing? He was waiting until God turned his enemies into his footstool. Same analogy. Now, during this time, many people came out to David. All during 2 Samuel, there was... uh, there's a whole story, we won't go into the details, but if you read David's life from particularly the area of 2 Samuel, you'll see one by one people are attracted to David out of Saul's kingdom. Who was the most prominent person in Saul's kingdom that came to David? It was Jonathan, the crown prince. Now that's interesting because the crown prince should have been king next in the, in the Saul-eyed line. So when you have a guy like Jonathan come defecting from his father's kingdom, coming over to David's side, ending his career, by the way, because now the Saulite house, the dynasty to which Jonathan belonged, they're out of a job. But he comes to this because he's convinced that God is with David, not with his dad. And who else comes over? Uh, I list them. They're, they're, uh, it's not 2 Samuel 22.2, by the way. That's a misquote. Everyone that was in distress, in debt, disconnected, gathered themselves unto him, and he became captain over them. Okay? I have to correct that verse. Look it up, which one it is. But all during this time, there's defections that are happening. Now, isn't it interesting that at no point in this did David build an army and directly confront Saul, did he? Saul was having his problems with the Philistines and the matters of state. David trusted the Lord to work it out. But there never was a direct conflict between Saul and David in the sense of, you know, David and Goliath and the battlefield going at it against each other. 
Well, isn't it interesting that the Lord Jesus Christ seems to do the same thing? That between the time of his session and the time when he returns to earth to claim his kingdom, to claim the Davidic throne, to cast out the angels, because remember that, that uh, the millennial kingdom starts because the angels are cast in, into a prison, the evil angels. And between these two events, what is Jesus doing right now? He's executing an indirect strategy. In other words, he's not directly confronting Satan as he does in the tribulation, for example, in the second return. There's a finesse to this whole, there's a maneuver going on in history. So we want to look at that, and to help you, I've made a table on page 21. And we want to look at this because I've got two tables, table number two, table number three. And we want to look at these two topics because they give us renewed respect for why the four Gospels are written the way they are and why God has laid out certain procedures in the Christian life for us to follow. And we get in trouble when we don't follow those procedures. On table two, I cite two doctrines that we went over a couple of years ago when we were going through the Lord Jesus Christ's life. Hypostatic union and the doctrine of kenosis. Look on your table, second column, under hypostatic union, and you'll see the summary. Undiminished deity, true humanity, united forever in one person without confusion. Look down below that, and you'll see the doctrine of kenosis, just to review. As God-man, Jesus Christ gave up the independent use of his divine attributes and accepted a 100% creature-dependent existence during his mortal life. If there was to be a miracle, it would have to be the Father okayed it. He never used his deity independently. If the Father said, it's okay, I want you to show your deity, Jesus could show his deity. That's the doctrine of true kenosis. Kenosis doesn't say he never used his deity. Kenosis says that when he did use his deity, the initiative came from the Father, not from the Son. So, what does the hypostatic union do for us here? In this conflict where the angels, are, Satan is, is constantly conducting a legal campaign about the way God goes about his business. All right? Right column, table one. Satan's possible appeal is refuted. In other words, Satan can appeal, there shouldn't be any man on the throne of God. That belongs to me. Isaiah 14. I want to be like the Most High. I should occupy that throne. Not some wimpy guy from the planet Earth, one of those men-creatures. Not those creatures that were made less than me. No right to do that. You can't outrank me. You're a human. I'm an angel. Psalm 8. Well, the answer is in that box. On the right column, first row. True humanity is what historically and perfectly obeyed the will of God, the creator-creature distinction not violated at any time. That's why in the Gospels, the Lord Jesus Christ kept in his humanity. And the idea was that he never utilized his deity to execute the plan of God.
That means, therefore, that someone, member of the human race, created for the first time in history absolute righteousness. First time it's ever been done. Adam muffed it, Eve muffed it, and every person since then has muffed it. But there was one time when one member of the human race did it and met the standards of God so that he could walk into God's holiness presence in perfect obedience. That's the, that's the importance of the hypostatic union. You have to have the hypostatic union in order to protect the quality of obedience, the quality of that righteousness. It doesn't do any good for God to utilize his own attribute with his own attribute. This is a righteousness that is born of a person, a member of the human race, who obeyed God's will perfectly. Now, Satan can't execute his appeal. Because now, sitting in the throne, is a creature who perfectly obeyed and Satan didn't. So morally and ethically, Jesus is superior and he outranks him and Satan can't do anything about it. Because now he's, the installation has already occurred. He can gripe about it. He can complain about it. He can try to deceive us into believing it's not true. He can create heresies in church history that portray Jesus as not part of the hypostatic union so he can twist people's minds so they, they get confused and think Satan does have an in with his appeal. But if we know the true doctrine from the scriptures, we know that Satan has no appeal. Can't do a thing about it. Member of the human race, father's right hand. Member of the human race did what Satan couldn't do. Member of the human race perfectly obeyed the father. So, that's number one. Number two in that box on table two has to do with something that is very important for us in the rest of the church age. Because the second row deals with kenosis. And it says that Jesus utilized procedures that we in the church age utilize. In other words, he was like a test pilot. He went out, he utilized the faith rest procedure, filling of the Holy Spirit procedure. He utilized all, and the only procedure we use that he doesn't is confession of our sin. But all the things that the New Testament tells, walk by faith, all the rest of it, that's all procedures that he used. When we talk about the life of Christ, that's what we're talking about. So, the point of kenosis is that the Lord Jesus Christ proved out the procedures given in the New Testament for every believer. When we utilize the faith rest approach, when we utilize the filling of the Holy Spirit, when we walk by faith, we are duplicating what Jesus did in his humanity. He didn't have any special tools. He didn't have special tools that outrank us. So, when we come along and walk along in history, we can't say, here we are, and we face some trial, some mess down here. And we listen to the New Testament, and the New Testament says, here's some, here's some promises to trust. Here's the way I want you to handle the mess. We can't look up here at the Lord Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand and say, well, he had, he had something in his little plate that I don't have in mine. Can't do that. 
the Lord Jesus Christ comes right back down and says, you ever hear the doctrine of kenosis? What does it say in Philippians 2? I humbled myself, I became obedient as a man. Now don't give me the stuff that I had an easier time than you do. So here we have the other answer to, to Satan. Not only was it a creature that was perfectly obeying, but Jesus' obedience was by faith in the same manner as any other member of the human race. He never utilized his divine power to avoid trials and temptations as Satan indeed tried to get him to do. So he kept his creature integrity and he at the same time proved out that God provides for all of our needs. The Lord Jesus Christ in his life proved that God gives the creature sufficient operating assets to handle anything that can come up in life. Because Jesus did it. So now Satan has no... He can't touch the Lord Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand. So he may try to appeal that. And I believe one way he tries to appeal it isn't directly to God necessarily, as it is to us. By screwing up our idea of who Jesus is and who we are. By making it seem that the Lord Jesus Christ obviously lived a righteous life and we can't. We got, we got special needs. We don't have any special needs that the Lord Jesus Christ didn't have. The needs are the same. We have to be careful of this because the woods are full of people always want an excuse. It's part of the sin nature. Please excuse me for my thing. And God says, well, I'm sorry, you're responsible. I've provided in toto for all of your needs. Now, let's move on to the next part of this dilemma. If, it's, if down here in this process of time, we're seeing a, a historical progress going on, and it's analogous to David and Saul, what is going on here? What do we say was happening from the time that David was anointed to the time he had seen the throne. People were coming to him. They were defecting from Saul and coming to David. One by one. What is happening here? Here's Satan's kingdom. Here's the kingdom of Christ. People are defecting, 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 defecting. Think he likes that? Think he likes to see the gospel go on? Winning people to Christ? You suppose Satan tolerates this? He doesn't tolerate it. If he could stop this tonight, he would stop it tonight. God has put a door open to the church that no man can close. That's the proof that though Satan is the god of this world, though he has control of this kingdom, he can't stop his kingdom from leaking. Because God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, because remember what Jesus Christ said to the church in Revelation? I've set an open door and no man is going to shut it. There's no creature in history that's going to shut this door. I've opened it. The keys of death and hell I have. So, this is what's going on. So we have the strategic victory has already been won up here. The strategic victory means that the new human race has a head, a new Adam. That's why Paul talks about second Adam, the last Adam. That isn't just Bible words. That's a title. And it means there literally is a new species of the human race. 
what's the definition of a species? Species is within which you haven't reproduced, right? All right. The new human race is a different species from the old human race in that it is born again. It is the Holy Spirit that generates this new species. The old species can't breed the new species. So we have a new species being created. The Lord Jesus Christ is the member of this. He is in resurrected body. He's finished his complete thing. He proved perfect obedience. His mortal body was changed to an immortal body at the point of the resurrection. He is now at the Father's right hand. He can't be removed. Satan can't appeal it. It's already proved now that humanity has won the battle. The human race has won. That's the strategic victory. He holds the high ground. And that's always the issue in military conflict. Who holds the high ground? That's why the Russians and the Americans, why we had to fight over the satellites, is because who owns the high ground? Who controls the high ground? In the Civil War, it was the same thing. The Battle of Gettysburg is the same thing. All these battles, you check it out. What, was the, what were the generals trying to do? They were trying to maneuver the armies to control the high ground. And if you can control the high ground, you control everything else. Well, who controls the high ground now? Angels or human beings? It's the human being. Human race controls the high ground. So that's the strategic advance that happened in 30, 33 AD. Now, after that, we have tactical victories that happen in history. These are all tactics. One tactic is evangelism. Every time someone trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a tactical victory because now Satan has a casualty. According to Ephesians 4, now there's a prisoner of war. The Lord Jesus Christ has gathered booty out of Satan's kingdom. And he has a prisoner. Except the Lord Jesus Christ blesses the prisoner and gives the prisoner in gifts him and gives him to the body of Christ because he wants to build up the body of Christ. Now, why does he want to build up the body of Christ? Because it's the body of him. See, the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, is the head. So if you look, I'll draw a big stick figure here. The church itself is an is a entity, is a body. And when it's complete, it has a head. The head is the Lord Jesus Christ but he has this body that he works with. And that body has to be complete prior to the second advent. So what's happening now is the body is becoming complete. Here's a person believes, there's a person believes. Here's a black man, here's a white man, here's a red man, here's a yellow man. Here we are, they're believing, believing, believing. Same gospel, same member of the human race. Then, the second thing that happens in this tactical victory is whenever you have believers that use the same operating assets that the Lord Jesus Christ used and are victorious. When we are victorious over testings and over temptations, we attain a tactical victory because Satan's been defeated. He wants, if he can't stop us from being translated in the kingdom, what he will try to do is make you perfectly fruitless. With no testimony. With no, no nothing to show. So, 
either he tries to prevent you from believing the gospel or he tries to make you an absolute impotent nothing after you accept Christ. But every time you operate by faith and you claim the authority of the scriptures, the content of the Bible, and apply it in a situation and walk by faith, tactical victory. Because now fruit has been generated, and every time that tactical victory happens, Satan's argument is getting weaker and weaker and weaker. Because his argument depends on the fallacy that creatures have to sin. Creatures have the right to act as God. So every time you and I trust the Lord, humble ourselves, casting our cares upon him because he cares for us, tactical victory. All right, let's go to chart on table 3, page 22. The first table is a defense of the position of Christ. The second table is a defense of the position of the Christian. A few weeks ago, before the holidays, remember I took you to Zechariah? And there was that passage in there where the high priest Joshua, well, it's not the Joshua of the Old Testament, but high priest Joshua shows up in the presence of God and he, he, his dirty garments. And Satan is there ready to accuse him. And God says, change his garments. Give him righteousness. a picture of righteousness, imputed righteousness. The Hebrew is a lot more uh, graphic than the English. What, is, what the Hebrew says is excrement-covered garments. That's what the text says. Of course, no translator wants to translate that. It might upset somebody. But that's what the Holy Spirit put in the original Hebrew text. Excrement-covered garments. That's the way we look in God's sight. And so God replaces those garments with perfect, clean garments. Righteousness. Now, on table three, the first row across that table is the defense of the basis of how fallen creatures can be acceptable in the throne of God and Satan not be. Because remember, redemption isn't offered to angels. So that's the argument here. Why is it, God, you permit these fallen creatures to have fellowship blood atonement of Jesus Christ. That's why there is one way and only one salvation. You see, if God had multiple ways of salvation, like most Americans want to have, because everybody wants to do it his way or her way, and we don't want to be told how something should be done, if God allowed, if he followed the plurality of cultures argument and had 15 ways to be saved, now look what would happen. Here we have the throne of God. Here we have the person coming up, substitutionary blood atonement. That's the basis that person A claims access to God. Person B comes up and they say, well, I don't believe in Christ. I believe that I'm good enough and I have enough good works, so I merit acceptance with God. So I have my little pile here. And I'm going to not trust the substitutionary blood atonement. I am not going to look to God to provide my need. I am demanding that my little measly righteous good works down here fit and are compatible with His righteousness. Now, isn't that cute? 
You see, it's, it's no more narrow-minded than the idea that if I'm an electrician, you know, I don't touch the hot wire. It's nothing to do with my personality. Nothing to do with my intelligence. It's just that's the way electricity is. This is just the way God's holiness is. You don't go to His holiness with high voltage and touch it. The Lord Jesus Christ has touched it with a substitutionary blood atonement. Okay? So that's why row one on table three says that it is the substitutionary blood and only the substitutionary blood atonement. All grace is grounded upon the total restitutionary satisfaction of God's just demands against sin. Remember how we defined it? We dealt with the death of Christ. We said, what was the underlying issue there? Your idea of justice. And if you have a biblical idea of justice, it's restitutionary. And the subterranean blood fits that mold, that model. Now, continuing on that first row across to the third column, there is no unavoidable contradiction between God's holiness and his acceptance of sinful creatures covered legally by the substitutionary blood atonement. That's a lock. That's a channel. That is a perfectly secure channel against all arguments. All appeals bounce off that channel. But they bounce only off that channel. And that's why when we refuse to review and to meditate upon the fact that it is only by the cross of Jesus Christ that I can walk into the throne room of God, we're in danger of heresy. The cross is central to this. It is the only thing that withstands argument. It's the only way to resolve this problem. Second row is the other plank in the platform. Imputation. God credits Christ's righteousness to the account of those who believe. Going over to the third column, the righteousness that is credited is that of Christ, note this, whose credentials have been accepted permanently at the Father's throne. Now, notice, nowhere in Table 3 does it say a thing about your good works. Nowhere is there anything about your personality, your intelligence, whether you're male, female, what color your skin is, or anything else is irrelevant. The only thing that that talks about is the substitutionary atonement of Christ and imputed righteousness. Now, that's why we have to be adamant about this. What constitutes the gospel here? Because in the overwhelming world, Satan can have a heyday with any other system of salvation. Because any other system of salvation that we propose is ultimately going to be based upon our merit. And the moment we do that, he can claim, wait a minute, I can do good works too. So, in the bottom then, if you look at um, the... Um, Bottom on page 22, we finally come to the fifth issue in the end of the review of judgment salvation, and that is God's salvation is always by means of faith. Never some other way. Always by faith. And if you look down the last paragraph on page 22 and read it along with me, 
tactical victories in the angelic conflict cannot be won by human works that originate in the fallen impulses of sinners. Human good carries no credit when it originates from an inherently evil motive of self-justification. Satan could then claim that such works would not be fundamentally different from anything he and his hordes could produce. Now let's review that sentence again. Satan could then claim that such works would not be fundamentally different from anything he and his hordes could produce. You suppose he could produce good works? Does all the time. All the time. Don't be fooled by satanic good works. Charitable things, good things. Now, is that saying that we shouldn't have good things? No. It's saying the impulse behind them is one of self-justification. I fan my ego because I do this. And aren't I such a good person because I did this and I did that? You'll find it in our Christian evangelical circles. It's all the time. Every church has it. We have it all. You've got to brush all this human good aside because you can fool yourself. And we have to go back to what is the impulse? What is the motive? Are we focusing on the risen Lord Jesus Christ, realizing there's a cosmic battle out there over this very issue of what is of true, lasting value before the throne? Continuing on page 22 at the bottom, Satan could well make the complaint, if God doesn't save angels, how can he justly save men on such a basis? What defeats Satan and glorifies God is faith in his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that is one thing that I want to close out tonight with emphasizing. Faith, this faith that is the method that we've reviewed every time we've had this faith rest drill, you know, we've gone through, what do we say first step faith rest drill is always? Fragment of scripture. Verse of scripture. Why is that? Because you can't have faith without an object for it. Where's the object come from? The Word of God. Can't come from the Word of man. Can't come from our wisdom. That would be faith in ourselves. Faith can only come by the Word of God. Faith is produced by the Word of God. And that is why Satan has, as one of his methods, to weaken the teaching of the Word of God. Because he knows, if Christians don't know, he knows that if he can compromise the content and the teaching of the Word of God, what can't happen? can't utilize faith. And if you can't utilize faith, now you can't exercise and produce fruit. People can't be one to the Lord and so forth and so on. So it's a battle that fundamentally harks back to why the Word of God has to be taught and it can't be compromised with basketball teams, hot musical groups, or anything else that competes with the Word of God, which evangelical circles are getting progressively full of. The one thing that's at stake here is the thing that produces faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Okay. We finish tonight, then, the session of Christ. The next event we're going to deal with is the earthly origin of the church. We've dealt so far with a heavenly origin. But I've handed out tonight 
the first section, Carol did, the first section of an appendix. We're going to pause for a few weeks because there have been repeated requests in this class to deal overtly and explicitly with the difference between Reformed theology's approach to the church and dispensational theology's approach to the church. So we're going to spend some time here. So we go into the history, a little bit of church history. This is not a big, profound, heavy thing. I, I'm taking highlights of church history, and I'm trying to give a brief contrast and comparison between the two systems. Actually, the systems have much in common. It's just that people are making an issue out of this. We're having people in our own circles uh, feel swept back and forth. They go read a book by this guy and he's reformed. They read a book by this guy. The reformed guys are saying the dispensationalist is a cult. And uh, then the dispensationalists are attacking the way the reformed people do this or that or don't teach the word or something else. So it really behooves us to look at this a minute because from now on, as we proceed, Session of Christ, Pentecost, Church Age, we have to, this is where the road parts. You can't go down, I can't push any further through the Bible than I am without confronting this issue. I'm going to go down the dispensational road. Make no, no apologies for it. I want to clarify why there's a fork in the road here and why you have to go down one or you go down the other. But you can't handle the events that we are now going to start handling, the methods and so forth, defining the church, defining the church's mission, without dealing with this. And I can be sneaky about it and, and teach that the scriptures say this or that or this, and you know, half of you would go along with it. But I don't think that has integrity because I want to flag you to what I'm doing and why I'm doing what I'm doing and what's going on here with, with some of these issues. So please read that, and next week we're going to be starting through Appendix A, and I'll give you some more. It should be probably three, three weeks or so in Appendix A. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ successfully completed his mission on earth, that you have rewarded him by promoting him to be above all the creatures, above every principality and power. And we're thankful for the privilege of being able to call upon him as our Savior. And that he outranks any spiritual adversary we may face. Moreover, we thank you that he has modeled the Christian life for us. And he has proved empirically in an experience that it can be lived in an evil universe. And it can be lived successfully. And that you have given to us all the procedures, all the operating assets that your son had. May we be challenged to understand these assets and how to utilize them in our day-to-day -day Christian walk. If we ask this in his name, amen. And it's here and uh, we'll uh, entertain any questions. Yes. The, uh, you guys mentioned one Oh, yeah. And they consciously make 
Yeah, I. The the question is: Do fallen angels have a a, cho a chance for re for redemption or change or repentance? And there doesn't appear to be any evidence in the scriptures for this because. Uh, when, when Jesus confronted demons in one of the Gospels, they cry out to him, why have you come to torment us before the time? They're not crying out, oh, gee, I'm sorry, we made a mistake. They're saying that th their doom is for sure. And then you have the same, the reference, it's a very interesting one, in Matthew um, 25, I believe it is, where the Lord Jesus Christ says to humans, uh, depart from me, uh, and be cast into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And it's interesting in that reference, he's not saying it was prepared for man. It's almost like men get thrown into it only because they, they uh, just, they rejected, 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 rejected. And it wasn't on God's heart to put man in the lake of fire, but it wasn't his heart to discipline the angels that way. So whatever it is, I mean, we don't know what the details are. It's just we can only go by what the text says. And there doesn't appear to be any second chances. And this explains the fury. This is explain the, the principalities and powers are ferocious. And, and Peter is not using mere poetic language when in 1 Peter 5, you know, he says, Satan seeks to whom he may devour. As a, as a lion, he goes about this. He's, you know, he's not. There, there's a ferocity born of condemnation. I mean, if you know that you can never escape. I mean, you know, the old saying that the cornered criminal. I'll take as many of you with me as I can, because because it's, what other choices do you have? So you authenticate your. It's almost you use defiance to authenticate your existence. And I think this is why. Satan uses the kid in the glove. Um, he, he, he will alternate strategies in church history. Like one of his strategies is to prosper the church, because to, to get us totally walling around in, in secondary and tertiary issues. Well then if that doesn't work, then he'll use uh, intimidation physical violence, like it's happening in uh, Africa, it's happening in the Sudan, it's happening in Pakistan, Nepal, China. China just had 400 churches burned by the communist regime. Just going in with axes, sledgehammers, beating down the churches, burning them. And they think they're going to stop the church this way. Why? You know, We don't laugh at this because our brethren are suffering. But we laugh at it in the sense that, you know, after 2,000 years, you guys haven't learned that this never stops the church. The church always grows faster when you persecute it. I mean, you guys ever read history? Of course, surely they read history. So it's not that the angelic powers that stimulate this hatred, this vehement, destructive assault upon Christians. Um, it's not that they don't understand history, I think. It's so much as, because they've, they've witnessed it all. I, I think it's a fury. It's an emotional tantrum, a fury. And why it happens, we don't have all the answers, but I believe that where you see physical violence against the church, uh, against Christians, that it's a, last re it's a tactic of last resort. Well, what's ever happened in those areas, um, Satan has lost his cool. And he's coming out in the open. 
You want to take me on, he's saying? You want to really take me on? I'll take you on. How would you like to see your family cut down and have your, the arms chopped off in front of you? You like to see that? You want to take me on? So, he can be that way. But when he's that way, the church always grows faster. So, he winds up losing when he gets angry. Like that. But the fact that he is angry is, goes back to your point. That, that what else can he do than try to, try to stave off the inevitable. Um, I'm sure you see this in hostage situations, you know, where you've got a guy who's desperate and the negotiator is trying to break down to maneuver that so he doesn't become defiance. But in Satan's case, it is defiance. He knows he doesn't, there's no escape, there's no pardon. So the only maneuver that he can pull is to postpone the inevitable, and he can do that if he can stop the growth of the body of Christ. And you can do that by doctrinal heresies, because doctrinal heresies finally erode the gospel, you erode the gospel, people can't get saved now, because there is a false message. So he has this repertoire of weapon systems, all dedicated to trying to postpone the inevitable. Yeah, that's a good point that Debbie brings up. Is it can also operate, operate? Not only does he want to stave off his own doom, but he could also he could also say, um, "I'm going to I'm going to get at the heart of God by by hurting somebody he loves." And that's a good way, good approach. And I'm sure that probably enters into his maliciousness because I mean the malicious. We know from human life that human beings think this way. I was just reading a, pa- a story the other day about the president of Liberia, this guy Charles Taylor or something. He got the guy that was before him, cut off his ears and made him eat his own ears. Um, so, I mean, that's the way life is in Africa. Um, but it, man can be malicious like this. Well, who's the father of lies and murder and maliciousness? Who's the greater malicious one? So I'm sure that enters into it. Excellent point. Get it, God? Can't touch God? Okay, I'll touch some of his possessions. See how he likes that one. I mean, you're dealing with this kind of anger and hatred, and it makes you cautious, you know, when we pray, and it makes you want to be sure that, that we're doing things scripturally. Because when we drift off like that, we're, you know, getting into a bad zone. <laughs> Any, any other questions? Yes, Debbie. Uh, a question about your chart on 21, mm-hmm. where you, you say that Jesus was obedient, that Jesus' obedience was by faith in the same manner as any other example of grace. And I understand that in the sense that he, he avoided using his divine power to escape his trials and temptation and only used it in obedience to God. But I guess it's the faith part. Um, I guess for us, you know, we take even the existence of God and salvation through 
Jesus' atonement by faith, you know, purely by faith, where Jesus had to be the Father. You know, I mean, I guess, I guess that's what I'm asking as far as, like, just the fact that he took it by faith. I mean, it's almost like he had... He had. Okay. Okay. That's an astute observation, uh, Debbie. And let me let me comment on this. She's raised an interesting point. Is the faith of Jesus really like the faith of of Christians? Put it in, in those terms. And one of the problems we have, and I'm glad you did this because the what what's behind your question, I think, is that Jesus knew things we didn't know. And so we take it purely by faith, like we've never empirically seen the throne room. Jesus did, that sort of stuff. But we have to be very, very careful here on two points. One is, you remember back when we were dealing with kenosis, I took you to a passage in Isaiah. And in that passage in Isaiah, it's a prophecy of the Messiah learning as a child. And in that passage, you remember it says, he woke me up morning by morning to teach me. Jesus, in his humanity, had no conscience of his pre-existence. When that consciousness shows up, because his humanity didn't exist, that's a sign when he is manifesting his deity. When he says, you know, in John 3, uh, uh, in John 8, uh, before Abraham was, I am. And that's clear, his deity is shining forth there. Uh, that's not his humanity. So, you know, that's the complexities of Jesus. I mean, how do you get divine, you know, divinity and humanity together in one person? Holy mackerel. Um, talk about the Trinity problem. The hypostatic union is even worse, as far as us understanding. But, but, be careful. The humanity of Christ is genuine humanity, and he learned just as we learn. And that's why, even in Hebrews, it says he learned obedience by the things he suffered. And it didn't come, quote, naturally to him in the sense that you're thinking, that he was kind of relying on his omniscience occasionally to undergird his faith. That's one thing. Second thing is, we want to be very, very careful as Christians we, that we understand how we use this word F-A-I-T-H. Our whole culture out there, the, the popular culture, has ingrained in us a false definition of what we mean by F-A-I-T-H. The common street version is that faith is weak knowledge. That when you don't know something, well, I just believe that so. As though what you believe is unprovable. What you believe is disconnected from reason. And that's not true. Romans 1 says, and, and uh, I, I want to follow me just for a minute here. Romans 1 says what? We know what? We know God is always, everywhere, and we know his righteous judgments. All men, even non-Christians know that. What has happened to us is because of the blindness of sin and our fallen nature, we don't daily moment by moment perceive God. Not because, I'm not talking about his throne room now. I'm talking about a consciousness that he's here. The consciousness that 
we are right now utilizing him to be able to talk to each other. The structure of language is rooted on a sustaining hand of God. The fact that we can reason. If, if we were just mass in motion and marbles rolling around, there'd be no reason. There'd be no absolute standards. There'd be no moral uh, rules. All those are coming to us all the time from God. Because it's that that Paul says that condemns us. It's not that we wind up, oh God, you know, if you would just make yourself clearer to me. I think if we, God must struggle <laughs> to not say to us when we think that, um, excuse me, but you already know me. Why don't you wake up to what you already know? You know, I made you. You're using me. You're walking on my grass. You're breathing my air. You're reasoning with my logic. And you say you don't know me? So the problem is we're trying to deal with our own fallenness, our own deadness, our own blindness to the presence of God. And, and all the way I can say it is you've got to meditate very deeply and long and hard on passages like Romans 1 to convince yourself that in fact we do know. We're just fooling ourselves when we say we don't know God. So there's two things to sum it up. One is Jesus learned and developed his faith like we do. And the, and the second thing is faith is not the absence of reason. Faith is the exercise of reason. That's the unbeliever that's, that's invented that. Because hidden inside that little idea is that God is so either uncaring or incompetent. He's uncaring because he's sneaky. He doesn't really let us see the evidence for his existence. He just wants us to believe. Or he is incompetent and he's not really efficient in how he reveals himself. Well, those thoughts are blasphemous. That God is, wishes our ill and that he's incompetent. I mean, what kind of a picture of God? Who's the author of that thought? So, when you keep running your mind up against Romans 1, up against Psalm 19, up against those passages, it just starts to jar your whole idea of, I don't think I really am using the word faith right here. So, you've got to be careful of that. Okay? And I think we'll be careful and dismissed right now. Uh, and next week, we'll start in with a, uh, a few weeks of uh, theology class. <laughs> yeah. That's what the whole spring and probably next fall is about. We started it already. Yeah.